Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Mark Rayshap, and this is Another Bottle Down, uh, a radio show and podcast about wine and the wine industry. We broadcast on air in Austin, Texas on 91.7 FM, and then uh, create this podcast to distribute worldwide. So I hope that you uh, are enjoying it wherever you are listening. So um, on today's show, we've got uh, Karen and Paul Bonarigo. They're owners of Messina Hoff, second generation. Uh, they took over from their parents in uh, 2015, and uh, and they, they do make a, a a lot of wine, a lot of different tiers, as we're going to hear, 90 different wines. It's incredible, uh, but I think that they're making a really strong mark on their top levels, the Paolo line and the Private Reserve. I recently rated the Refre- Reflections of Love uh, Private Reserve Merlot very high in a blind tasting, so um, very interested in that, and, and their Paolo Sagrantino I did in a Texas uh, lineup of wines, and it showed very well. So um, so looking forward to, to hearing from Paul and Karen Bonarigo. A couple of things before we get started. Uh, make sure that you are subscribed to this show in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And, and I would be really appreciative if you rate the show. Uh, it's how the, the iTunes knows that people are listening and being engaged. So if you've been listening, uh, and I know that you have been, I, I see the numbers. It's really wonderful. Uh, go to the iTunes store and, and give a rating. It, it really helps. Um, a couple of really big events going on. I'm doing uh, next Wednesday in Austin, Texas on the 8th. A, um, a Bordeaux, 2007 Bordeaux class at the Wine and Food Foundation. And then the day after, uh, we're doing a chocolate and wine pairing on November 9th at the Chocolaterie Tessa uh, pop-up location in the domain of Austin. So for more information on that and tickets, go to winefoodfoundation.org. Okay, let's get into the show. And, uh, and here's Karen and Paul Bonarigo from Messina Hoff Winery. Well, welcome, Paul and Karen Bonarigo, to the co-op studios. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Uh, look forward to talking about Messinahoff. So you are now the current owners of Messinahoff. Your uh, Paul, your your father uh, and mother started it in the seventies, correct? That's right. Yeah, nineteen seventy-seven. Uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here and. We have a, a great story, especially this year. We're celebrating 40 years. Yeah, congratulations. Yeah, and uh, so my parents, with a labor of love, began the winery, and and uh, we took over in 2015. Yeah, wow. So uh, in broad brushstrokes, kind of tell, for folks who are not familiar with Messina Hoff, uh, tell what what uh, what the current state is and, and uh, what you kind of specialize in, and, and then we'll uh, after that we'll dig into the history a little bit. Sure. So uh, today, Messina Hoff has three locations. We have our estate winery in Bryan, Texas. We have our winery in Fredericksburg, right on Highway 290. And then we have a winery up in Grapevine, Texas. Uh, we produced right about 60,000 cases uh, last year. And this year, we just got finished producing 200,000 gallons of, of Texas wine. So um, we're rapidly growing. Wow, yeah. It's a great time to be in the industry. We make over 90 products, really trying to make a product that any consumer can enjoy. So right. that's why we have a broad portfolio. Uh, and then a lot of our focus is food, wine, and, and hospitality. So that fits in with most of our 
programs. Yeah, what what you do. So ninety wines. That's a or or, or that that might also include uh, kind of jams and other things, or or that's just the wine portfolio. That is just the wine portfolio. Oh my god, yeah. how do you keep track of of, of all of that and uh, and you know knowing that I guess it gives you some freedom to say, hey, this this lot or uh, tank is going to go into this wine, et cetera, et cetera. But keeping track of it is must be some challenge. Well, and you know a lot of it is uh, there's some that are stylistic changes to the wine, like for example our. Riesling, we have a off-dry style Riesling, and then we have a dessert style Riesling. Sure. So that's two different styles of, of a variety. Um, and then we have a couple different, like, for example, our premium line is our Paolo line of wines. And then we have some wines that are specific to partnerships that we might have where pro- proceeds go to benefit an organization. Like uh, we have a partnership with the Association of Former Students with A&M. We also have a partnership with the Nimitz Foundation in Fredericksburg, Texas. And recently we did a label that was Resilience that benefited uh, Hurricane Harvey. Um, and so we do have program wines that are sure. specific to that. So their, their blend and makeup might change. Yeah. But So it's it's 33 varieties blended into 90 different wines. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about the tiers. You, you mentioned that Paolo is, is kind of your creme de la creme, the top tier. Is there ways to, to differentiate the various tiers? Absolutely. Yeah, let's dig into that. So um, we are in the broad market, so most uh, in most stores, and so um, a lot of our focus in, in those uh, is making a product that's affordable for everyday consumer to be sure. able to to take our wine home with them. Uh, and so we have what we call our tributes here, and that's normally a, a slightly off dry style. So we have Riesling, Gewürztraminer, we have a Moscato, our Beau, which is a very popular sweet red, um, is in that tribute tier, and then. Um, kind of in line with that, we have what we call our barrel cuvee line, which is um, our mid-tier, you know, uh, price range that's very approachable. And that's, we do have a Cabernet Sauvignon, a Merlot, a Cabernet Franc, we have a, a Pinot in that in that tier. And then from that barrel cuvee tier, we have a couple of offshoots, like we have a Texas Hold'em Red that's in uh, Sawgrass Steakhouse nationwide, um, and uh, and a couple of other products that are, that are in individual uh, stores. Right, right. Um, and then when you start going up higher than that, we have our private reserve uh, line, which actually is moving to um, on-premise only, so you'll only find it in restaurants, bars, and at the winery locations as of January 1st. Um, and that's a, a higher-level uh, product. And we have some very unique wines, like our Tempranillo is in our private reserve level and not in any other level than that. Right. Um, and we also have our Artist Series, uh, which showcases artwork that has uh, in, been part of our artist competition that we do every year. Um, and those labels are very unique. Like we have our Primitivo, um, where the painting uh, called Barrique Ballerina was specially made just for that product. Uh, and then above the private reserve tier is our Paolo line. Yeah. And then how many how many different grape varieties might get showcased in Paolo? Um, so currently we have eight Paolo. It probably changes by year by year too, right? Exactly. Yeah. And and so Paolo is only made when we feel like it really showcases the quality of that particular year and uh, variety. So if we don't feel like that's a great year to put it in, then it might go into uh 
uh, another tier, but not in the Paolo line. Yeah. What are what are some of your favorite current Paolos? Uh, I know it's kind of hard to <laughs> limit yeah. them, but yeah. Well, what? of course, you know, there's a lot of excitement about our Paolo Segrantino. Uh, it's a variety that is um, very special to the Bonarigo family. My dad fell in love with it when he was visiting Umbria, and he we were the first Texas winery that played with it. Actually, one of the first U.S. wineries to play with Segrantino. There's not very much of it in the U.S., uh, and for us to win a gold medal with that in Vienna was uh, pretty astounding. But yeah. but the variety itself really performs well, so we are excited about that one. Um, Paolo Blend is... Describe that for oh. folks who don't know. Sagrantino is a pretty obscure grape, like you said, mm-hmm. and not even a whole lot of uh, producers in the U.S. What, what, what are the characteristics of it? Well, it's an incredibly dark um, grape, and one of the... the most intense characteristics is the level of tannin that's in the grape. I mean, it, it's a lot of people would compare it to Tanat in terms of stringency and structure. Um, and in some cases, especially if you get an Italian Sagrantino, um, I mean, they can be incredibly tannic. Incredibly tannic, <laughs> so. right. And you might see it. So there's a tiny little village, Montefalco, Sagrantino di Montefalco, um, if you want to kind of try a Texas a Sagrantino as well as one of the, the old world ones to compare. Yep. And so we, we really aim to try not to get that that intense uh, extraction. You don't have to. Uh, mm-hmm. So through a little bit more moderate um, maceration period, you're able to get a really well-structured wine that still has a lot of flavor that's not overpowering. Yeah. Um, and that's really what we're shooting for in, in, in the wine. So the 2015 was aged 18 months on oak, um, really gave it a nice dynamic characteristic Nicely structured, but also not too much. Not too much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what What other uh, Paolos stand out? I, I mean, are, are you as well excited about the Tempranillos that uh, are being grown in Texas? Is there a Paolo Tempranillo? We don't have a Paolo Tempranillo, and actually a lot of that's just because we're selling out at the uh, private reserve level. Um, and it is a, it's a variety that we have grown a lot in, and um, we are excited about, but just we have not diversified that particular variety yet. Okay. Yeah, 100% of our Tempranillo goes into that one product. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So um, did uh, describe, you know, you said that they're, you're growing really well or, uh, and, and quickly. Are there any uh, categories that you feel are, are growing um, either more quickly or uh, any grape varieties that you're, you know, trying to get as much fruit as you can from? Or, you know, that, that growth I find very interesting for, for your, you know, your winery. Well, and, and, you know, that question lines up very well with the tiers, too, because in the broad market, the things that are growing are not necessarily the same things that are hot in the, the winery, mm-hmm. right? Um, so we have, because of the diverse um, layout of our company and the way we sell the wine, uh, it does give us an opportunity to kind of play with both ends of the spectrum. Can what? you can you describe that a little bit more, that disconnect between folks who visit the winery and then and then what is kind of available on the broader market? Of course, and I can, you know, also a little bit of the mentality as to why we have three winery locations. Um, A lot of what we do is education. When people walk into the winery, this is an educational process to teach them about the wines and and so that they understand not only us as a winery, but also the grapes. The Sagrantino is a perfect example of that. There are so few consumers who 
actually understand what Sagrantino is. But after they visit the winery, they walk away with that understanding, and then they go and they look at their store that they normally buy their wine from and see if they can find it. Um, There are some key examples of that. Like Tempranillo has been something that has grown a lot in the state, but it had a similar transition. It took a long time for people to start recognizing it as a variety that grows well. Um, there's a lot of other varieties that have some similar recognition, uh, like uh, Mouved, and um, uh, you know Sangiovese has been growing. Primitivo is a variety for us that we have a cult following for our Primitivos, <laughs> and so um, probably about seven years ago, um, we launched a single vineyard Primitivo, and uh, we've had people from all over the country asking <laughs> when they could get a hold of it, but. Um, varieties really are showcasing differently in different regions of the state. And so to go back to your original question, kind of what varieties are we finding the most growth, most growth in, um, you know, in the grocery store, uh, in your broad market, people approach the products that they're most comfortable with. So what we are finding is we're, we're still getting that, that growth in, um, of course, like the Cabernet Sauvignon is a variety that almost everyone knows. So they want to try a Texas Cabernet Sauvignon. It is the number one planted variety in the state. Um, and it does grow well in the state of Texas. Um, our Riesling is a variety uh, is a, uh, a variety that we've been very successful with. Um, it was actually our Angel Riesling, which is our late harvest, was the first Texas wine to get a 90 in the Wine Spectator back in the 90s. Oh, wow. Um, and it has just exploded in growth as well. And that's not just at our Angel dessert level. Uh, it's also at our um, Father and Son Cuvée, which is the off-dry style. Um, but those are two varieties that in the broad market have performed very well for us. Uh, when you start getting into the kind of those more niche markets, the varieties like Tempranillo, Primitivo, uh, Movedra uh, have performed very well. Um, but it, it kind of changes on a regular basis. You know? so, it, so is that what people are looking for when they come out to the winery and, and they want to be educated? They want to try something that they've never heard of before? Do you, do, you, do you see that often? All the time. Yeah. And and that's that's actually fun. We, we train our staff to really be able to play off of that moment. Um, and, and really, we've uh, had a very great opportunity as our state winery being in Bryan College Station we are the first wine that many people drink. That's right. Yeah. And turn 21 and yeah. head off to the winery, right? <laughs> and, you know, there's this misconception that, well, you know, I like beer, I'll never drink wine. And I can't tell you how many times that, you know, that beer drinker walks in and it may not even be they're the ones that primarily come in. They might be with their significant other or something. And, well, you know, hey, try this wine. I bet you, I bet you that you'll warm up to it. And then, Soon, you know, the the within a couple of minutes, all of a sudden they're like, okay, yeah, I like this, and yeah. then the next visit, they're the ones that's taking the taking the reins, and so it's it's exciting to see people get excited about wine, and that's what that is all about, you know, yeah. that, that personal experience. Yeah, and that that goes a long way to you know, I remember the first experience that I had, you know, way back when, and that that really turned me on forever. Um, so let's let's turn the clock back a little bit and and talk about. Uh, the early days when um, and, and and your father uh, in the decision to plant in Bryan, uh, can you tell us a little bit of that story? Because I think it's a fun story. Yeah. Um, so going back even before they planted, you know, uh, my dad was from the Bronx, New York. Uh, there was the family heritage dating back uh, to Messina, Sicily, where the firstborn son is named Paul, and he takes over the winemaking for his generation. And actually. It's in, it's near, it's right near Messina, but the village is called uh, Walteri Sucomino. 
and it's up in the mountains. And we actually got a chance to travel there whenever I was uh, a teenager and uh, got a chance to see the the old family vineyard. Um, and it was really, it really filled in a lot of blanks for me to understand that culture. Yeah. Um, everybody partici- Everybody from the village participated. Whenever it was time to harvest, they all came out. They celebrated. It was a party. It was a celebration of the beginning of a new vintage. So that mentality he carried with him. Even when he went to the Navy and became a physical therapist while he was in California, he did some work in the California wine industry to kind of be able to really get his winemaking skills honed. Um, And then once he moved to Texas, he was a director of physical therapy at St. Joseph Hospital in Bryan. He actually had a patient come in that said, uh, you know, hey, I'm doing a a feasibility study to see what grapes would grow well in the state. Because at the time, nobody thought that you could grow grapes in the state of Texas. But this, this study was under the belief that that was not true, that, that you could really do a lot of great things, and, and it, it was absolutely proved to be correct. Sure. So the study was done all throughout the state, but in the in the Bryan location, um, my parents were the ones that planted on their property, and uh, it was a one-acre vineyard with 50 varieties. So it was a complete throwing a dart at a dartboard type moment <laughs> to try to see what would actually survive. And from that, they determined that really there were two varieties that in the Gulf region of, of Texas that would thrive and do well, and that was Blanc de Bois and Lenoir. But that same study was done throughout the state, and actually a lot of the study results were the reason why my parents dove in as deep as they did, as quickly as they did. And then they uh, they they decided to really run with uh, Lenoir or, or Black Sp- Spanish. As, uh, listeners to this show will probably hear me refer to it more as Black Spanish, but I know, and we can talk about that, I, I think that you guys really want to brand uh, the, the term Lenoir more so, right? Well, I, I think it's more distinctive. You know, Black Spanish to me... Um, it does sound better, I will admit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, th- I think it's, it, it really, I mean, there's also people who call it Jacques. So, you know, it's yeah. Um, more so than anything, the name recognition is something that we've called it Lenoir since we started, so that's what we're going to continue to call yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Most of anything, but, um, and actually, a lot of people don't even, like, they'll say, I absolutely love your, your port. Your port is the best port I've ever had, and they have no idea what variety goes into right. it. So there's also those consumers, too. Well, most consumers don't know what variety goes go in, in the Portuguese port as well. I mean, there could be 75 varieties that go into that. Exactly. Yeah. So um, so that, we're, we're, so the decision to kind of run with uh, Black Span, uh, with Lenoir and Blanc de Bois was made relatively early on, and then that vineyard was entirely converted to uh, Lenoir? Well, so the transition actually took a little bit of time, too, because, like, one, for example, one of our first wines that was a state grown and the state produced was our Chenin Blanc. Chenin Blanc survived uh, eight years uh, in the estate vineyard in Bryan. It was, and, and at that time, really, like, Pierce's disease wasn't really understood in right. terms of the effects. Um and so it wasn't until the end of that period when they really said, okay, you know, this is something long-term that we're going to need to invest in Lenoir. So uh, by 1982, they had planted the second vineyard completely. Um, and then blocks three and four uh, were in the next six years. Okay. Um, and so at this point, we're up to about 25 acres at the estate. Um, they also purchased property. Actually, they purchased two vineyards up in the high plains of Texas um, and planted a a variety of different grapes up there. 
Uh, and then when we opened our Hill Country location, we planted a small vineyard in that location too. Yeah, wow. Um, if you're just joining us, I'm here with Paul uh, Paul Mitchell Bonarigo and his wife, Karen. Uh, lovely to have you guys here. Really enjoyed talking about Texas wines uh, in celebration of Texas Wine Month, October being Texas Wine Month. And you guys are really busy this month with all the celebrations, I know. So thank you for taking the time. Of course. Um, let's, uh, so I really enjoy, um, you know, the breadth of, of the things that you do. Um, what are some of the things that, um, you know, that you see behind the scenes in the industry, uh, some, some things that, that Texas is doing really well, some things that, um, you know, maybe could, could use some in, uh, improvement or some challenges that we have to deal with. Can we kind of broach that? Sure. Uh, you know, I think overall as an industry, one of the greatest challenges that we have is awareness. Um, and actually one of the things that Karen and I will be doing, we'll be traveling up to New York here uh, two weeks from now, and we'll be doing a presentation to uh, New York media and, and consumers and being able to really talk about Texas wine and what we're all about. But in general, most consumers don't really understand that there is a viable, very viable Texas industry with really quality wines. Um, and, you know, we've been ranked uh, as high as the fifth largest wine producing state uh, yeah. right behind Oregon. So that, that's very significant. So that educational element is a, is a challenge as an industry that we really have to put and our so arms you, around. And so you're really referring to almost out of state uh, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the entirety of the U.S. Uh, or in state as well. Both. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you look at, and this is kind of on the distribution side. Right. In the state of Oregon— Oregon wines represent 15% of the shelf, uh, and shelf being in your stores and, and in restaurants, sure. ba- basically placements. Right. In Texas, Texas wine only represents about 3%. Wow. So there's a major gap um, where I think that a lot of it comes down to once consumers understand the quality is there and the price point is worth it, then they'll go out and purchase Texas wine because they want to support Texas. Texans are very proud, which oh, is, yeah. which is, that's something that I always love whenever I was in the military, no matter where I went, I had people, you know, I was overseas. I had people uh, walk up to me and say, Oh, a Texan and pretend like I was a cowboy. Where's your horse type thing. Um, so Texans get around and, and uh, they're very proud of their state. And I think that that does translate to wine as well. Once they understand that it's good and it's there. Right. I mean, do you think though that um, that 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 maybe in the early days there was some mediocre wine that was being produced that kind of got, gave Texas a bad name? Is that is the is the wine that you see just around the state in general improving overall? It is for me that I'm I'm seeing the the quality improve no, leaps and bounds. I think there's no doubt, and I think that you know one of the I, I would say this is a challenge, but I would say that one of the things that is um, always kind of a concern when you approach a consumer base, especially the different ages of consumers. Uh, there are people who approached Texas wine 15, 20 years ago and made an opinion and have not reapproached it again to right. be able to give it a chance. Well, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we had less than half of the wineries that we had. Uh, the growers that we had within the state, I mean, the number of acres in the state of Texas that have been planted has doubled in the last four years. And you're seeing this new expertise come in um, to be able to uh, to make better quality grapes and better quality wines, uh, especially in the last five to seven years that has never happened before. So 
people need to give the Texas wine industry another chance and try the products. Yeah, and and I say that very very regularly. I, I moved to Texas, uh, oh nine almost nine years ago, and uh, the the landscape of Texas wines is entirely different than 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 even then, you know. And I can't even imagine the the early early days. Um, uh, well, let's let's take a short break, and um, and if you're you're just joining us, uh, this is another bottle down on Co-op Radio. My name is Mark Rayshap, and we're talking with Paul and Karen Bonarigo from Messina Hoff Winery in Bryan, in the Hill Country, and in Grapevine. We're featuring Texas wineries all month, the, the month of October being Texas Wine Month. So uh, here in the studio with Paul and Karen Bonarigo from Messina Hoff, uh, we left off um, our, our, the first segment, but I want to delve back into um, the, the, more of the history of, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of skipped, skipped about uh, 20 years in there, right? <laughs> where, where did we leave off and, and, um, and, and what kind of happened during that, that like the teenage years? Of, of the winery? So, um, you know, shortly after the beginning, uh, even for the first three or four years, you know, my parents, they saw the potential there. They wanted to be involved. They had bought a couple of used milk tanks and, and some used barrels. At the time, it was a very, very humble beginnings. Um, and a lot of people don't realize my dad was actually still an active physical therapist all the way up until uh, 2008. Um, so the entire time he was running the practice and, and, uh, the winery at the same time with my mom. Um, but as they grew, they realized that kind of going back to that whole education and awareness deal that they needed to, to really connect with people. And uh, that was something that was very natural to my mom. She grew up in Texas. Uh, she was a real estate agent. She was from the community in Bryan. So, uh, she had deep roots there. And so as they established a location, they really realized that this is more than just about the wine itself. It's about family. It's about connections. It's about the food. It's about everything that involves wine. And so shortly thereafter, they started going down the path of trying to create a destination where people would um, come visit the winery, but also be able to get away. So they built a one-room bed and breakfast. We called it the Vintner's Loft at the time. Um, they bought a, uh, or they, uh, they built a hospitality center that's our tasting room now. Um, and then the next phase after that was building our restaurant, which at the time they thought was going to be a teaching kitchen, but realized shortly after, let's just do it. Let's just make a restaurant and, and see what we can do. And and so they built the what restaurant. What year was that? So what, what year did the restaurant come about? That was 1996 was when it was built. Okay. Uh, 1997, it was in, is in operation as a restaurant. And at the time it was called uh, the Trattoria. And then after, since nobody knew what that meant, uh, <laughs> they named it the Vintage House, um, with the concept of that every dish has wine in the recipe, and it's really the food is meant to make the wine sing and vice versa. So everything we make there is meant to be very food and wine friendly. And that also translates to the events that we do. Our designer events department does uh, private events, so weddings, corporate events, things like that, Well, we also throw in-house events, and that's like uh, our wine release dinners and murder mystery dinners and things where people can come and they get wine, food, and then entertainment. So yeah. it's a fun time. How can people uh, find out about those things? MessinaHoff.com yes. uh, would be Website. the main source, and, and, and maybe some social media stuff too um, on Facebook. And, uh, We're very active on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, and uh, definitely on our website. We're constantly updating uh, the events. Actually, we're already beginning to put some 2018 uh, events on there. We've got some exciting things like our New Year's Eve party and 
um, and other events. Our wine premiere is actually next weekend uh, or in, uh, on November the 4th. So uh, we've, we, we normally do three major releases a year. We do our spring release dinner in the spring, uh, and that's in April. We do our grand finale dinner, which is the conclusion of our state harvest in August, and then we do our wine premiere in November. Yeah, every year, and, and uh, also uh, you you do different events at different of the different uh, winery locations as well, right? Absolutely, and each each winery does things a little bit differently in terms of the way they structure it, but we try to keep the same spirit to it. Um, you know, e- each winery has a little bit different uh, um, kind of strengths that they that they play to. Um, so yeah, you have to look at the website to be able to right. see kind of what's going on with that. Right. Um, but and then the last piece that we added to the property was our uh, eleven room bed and breakfast. That's whenever we took it full scale. It's called our villa. It's actually a four diamond property. It's the only four diamond property in eighty miles of uh, Bryan College Station, um, and it's just a great place to is a destination to get away hang out for the weekend, have some wine and food, and, and just relax. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, th- that's a wonderful, I mean, as far as uh, all of the things that wine should be, you know, wine should be with food, wine should be a part of relaxation and getting out and, uh, and tourism and all that kind of stuff. It's wonderful. Um, going in terms of kind of the, the growth of the, of the winery and then, um, you know, there, we know that recently you've kind of jumped really quickly, but was there any stages where you're like, well, we, we want to produce more of this, or, you know, we, we need to be making more of this to make a viable, you know, situation? No, absolutely. And so we entered into distribution in 1987. And um, that was when my parents were distributing directly from the winery to local accounts within our region. Um, but distribution didn't start taking off until 1995. So that's when it really started uh, to grow. And actually, we, uh, a lot of people don't realize this, but we shipped wine into Japan in 1989. So we were international by 1989. Now, th- you know, since that point, really haven't done a whole lot internationally. Just most of the supply is with, within the state of Texas. Um, but then late 90s, then we start branching out into a national scene, even got into Washington, D.C. When Bush was president, we actually were served in the White House, uh, sort of the inauguration. We were in Virginia, North Carolina. So um, that spurred on different different phases of growth. But as Texas wine became more uh, aware in Texas, uh, we had definitely major phases of growth during that time, too kind of spikes of, of production. Yeah. So I think by 2000, we were um, right about 20,000 cases. Yeah, wow. And have you seen a, a change kind of in whether sweet, whether you have more popularity in the sweet wine category or in the, you know, your as in your ports and, and the, the, the off-dry Riesling, et cetera? Do you see kind of things moving on a drier range because you make lovely, uh, you know, dry, dry table wine reds? Uh, in general, the um, especially from our winery sales from the tasting room, it's a very broad uh, sale. It's very even in terms of the the way we sell. In the broad market, it's a little bit more weighted towards the casual drinker. So um, definitely like our Moscato, our Riesling, our Bow are uh, big sellers for us in terms of volume. Um, but I think that that all plays into the overall wine drinker journey. Um, 
a lot of people who might start with the sweeter wines then will translate sure, over to sure. the drier wines and then they stay within our portfolio. Yeah, yeah. Um, what a so you you mean you really have uh, your your pulse on very, very many aspects of the industry. Um, are you the the largest producer in Texas? Is that uh, or we're the largest producer of Texas wine? Okay, yeah, so we're okay. not the largest winery, but we we're dedicated to Texas products. Yeah. yeah. And um, so what what do you, you know, back to that, you know, where the industry is going and we, we were uh, starting to talk about that, um, you know, I think that uh, we see that your family has been very involved with, uh, you know, the Texas Wine uh, and Grape Growers Association uh, and, and really invested in the future of the industry, right? Well, I'm a board member on, on the Texas Wine and Grape Growers Association. Karen is the president of the Hill Country Wineries um group and it's right there in Fredericksburg. So, um, we are very involved. We feel like this industry has such an amazing future potential and want to be a part of that growth, not only in helping to guide it, but also in really helping to build, uh, you know, the, the awareness and, and marketing of, of all those different organizations. But I, I think that probably the, the most key thing that we're facing right now, um, or that's an opportunity for us is that for the first time in our history, uh, we are getting to the point where we have enough supply within the state of Texas for grapes to be able to ne- meet the needs of the wineries that are here. And a lot of people don't realize, but over those years where we had explosive growth, so when we started, when Messinhoff started, there were three wineries. Well, now there's over 300 wineries, and that growth happened not in parallel with the planting of vineyards. So the wineries exploded around population centers because wine was popular and and uh, and that was the direction that we were going, but the, there was not grapes to support that. And we are to the point where that is happening. Um, and there's also a level of expertise and resources um, that are now being put into, put into the vineyards of the state that make the grape growing just really exceptional quality. So quantity and quality are now available. So wineries only need to look for it to be able to get a hold of that those products. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Karen, I might bring you in here to talk about the uh, the Hill Country Winery Association. I, I did see, when did you take over as being uh, president of that? So a president this past year. So Congratulations. it's a one-year yeah. term as VP last year. Uh, and it's a great organization. So we have uh, 50 wineries that are part of the organization just in the Hill Country AVA. And um, it, we focus on just bringing awareness to the region. We have uh, tourism groups that'll come through and we have trails that'll happen during the year. Um, but more than anything, it's a matter of just opening up knowledge about the area and the wineries that are there. And you have a multitude of different types of tasting experiences and uh, portfolio options to be able to explore. And so right. it's, a, it's a great place to be able to check out Texas Wine in One Place. Ab- absolutely. And, and so there are resources. I actually had on January, uh, January Weesey from, uh, uh, on, I guess, the executive director yes. uh, a couple weeks ago. So it was great to have her talking about the passport program that was going on during Texas Wine Month. Um, do you have, you know, in, in what you see on the kind of behind the scenes level, um, are, are people, you know, people, a lot of people are going out to the hill country and uh, do, do you see like, 
like that the the number of experiences are just growing that people want to really find their niche or um you know it, it's it's a wonderful time to be going out there right right i think it's everyone's still in the exploratory phase which is really exciting for everyone so uh, you have a bunch of different winery different models you can go in and do private tours you could do food and wine pairings you could do uh tastings on a tour bus you could um you know, come in just any day of the week. And so you have lots of options and um, possibly every varietal grown in the state available someplace in the hill country. So you have this microcosm of of wines to be able to try. So most of the people that I would say come through know that they have that ability. And so there's this excitement and curiosity to be able to want to try multiple wineries at the same time. And so uh, we see people that will travel up and down and do two or three in a day or stay for the weekend. And that's part of their journey. And they're excited about that. They don't want to try the same thing twice. Totally, totally. Um, I might pivot to back to, to Messina Hof. You do a lot of the, uh, the pairing dinners and, uh, and, and those experiences. What can, can you talk a little bit about, about that, your thoughts on wine and food pairing? It's such a big part of what you guys do. Um, like, you know, what are kind of some of the basics then if folks aren't, uh, really familiar <laughs> So I love food, absolutely love food. Um, food's always been a big part of my family. I come from an Italian family. There's food in everything. Right, yeah. um, Meryl, my mother-in-law, is was very tied to the food program at Messina Hof, and so she had been doing that since the early 80s and had you know put together wine and food cookbooks to be able to focus on how to feature those two things together. And so the vineyard cuisine concept that we have at the restaurant, we have a cookbook, that has the same the same concepts there where you can pair certain things together and have these affinities that are really beautiful and showcase the elements and spice elements of different dishes versus the characteristics of certain particular grapes and so that's part again of kind of an exploratory journey as you go throughout food and wine pairings because you may try foods that you are not a fan of however when you pair them with certain wines they all of a sudden be- become this magical experience and so Uh, We focus on that a lot at the winery with the dinners that we do so that we can introduce people to new varietals, to new wine concepts and wine styles, but with that comfort of food that they may be more comfortable with or vice versa. Um, having them experience foods that they may not have had before um, with wines. And so it's, it's a matter of balancing weight more than anything, Um, weight balance with the, with the wine and weight with the food. You never want your food to overpower your wine and your wine to overpower your food. So that's usually the the rule number one, if you had to pick a rule, but okay. we always try to reassure everyone that if you like a wine and you like a food, then enjoy them together sure. and, uh, and, and have at it. So yeah. What's one of your favorite pairings at the, at the moment? Oh, uh, uh, <laughs> it depends on mood and, right. uh, and you can I give us two. I have, two. I have an appreciation for lots of them. Um, I love mushrooms. Um, absolutely love mushrooms. I'll put that on absolutely anything. So we have some really beautiful reds right now in the portfolio that do really well with that because they have this rustic feel so our primitivo is beautiful um, with anything mushroom related um, same with cabernet franc um, there's really beautiful comforting pairings yeah um, that you can have any day of the week um, we have uh, our sophia marie rosé is a dry style rosé and it's named after our daughter so um, we made it the first year that she was born in 2010 it was the first year we were back at the winery in texas um, after Paul's military service, and um, it, it it means a lot to us. Has her handprint yeah, on it, but sure. it 
matches really beautifully with a bunch of different dish options that you can have, especially for parties. So anything like olives, cheeses, uh, charcuterie, anything like that. It's very versatile and it just, it's it's a fabulous food and wine pairing wine. Yeah. Are you guys making more of that rosé every year to year? I, I see uh, Texas rosé is just becoming really, really popular and, and rosé in general. Yes. Are you guys just go, going gangbusters with that one? Rosé is lovely because from a food and wine pairing standpoint, you can flex it all over the board. So our Sophia Marie is, um, it's a dry style dolcetto and um, that's done really well. We do have um, an option, um, our Mama Rosa Rosé, which is named after my father-in-law's mother. She just turned 96 a couple weeks ago. Um, that's an off dry, that's a, a semi-sweet rosé. And then we have a sparkling rosé as well um, that we have in the portfolio. And that's really a great option. Yeah, well. yeah, very cool. And we'll cool. have a new one actually coming out next year as well. Um, what can we get a can we get a preview? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be a dry style Grenache more than likely. So okay, we're working. It'll have the new artwork from the artist competition that um, won this past um, uh, April, and so we're putting to get that together, and that'll be coming out. It's 2017 vintage, so we're still finishing up the winemaking on that, and so then that'll be released um, hopefully pretty soon. Awesome, great. Can we talk about the, this this uh, vintage? What you've seen uh, and. Uh, we know that uh, as I've been talking with winemakers around the the state, uh, there's been a lot more fruit this year and the quality has been good, right? Is that what you've seen? Absolutely. Um, so in those vineyards, uh, High Plains is primarily where we source most of our fruit. Uh, that's up near Lubbock for those that aren't familiar. Um, one of the interesting things, there's not a whole lot of rainfall that happens up in the High Plains, but especially this year, one of the most challenging times for our harvest phase is September. And what you wind up having is right at the end of your ripening period, you you get threatened by rain, and it it hurts, or it doesn't hurt, but it, it delays the final phase of har- uh, of ripening, and in some cases, can lower uh, fruit quality. Well, this year, uh, because of the storms that were happening in southeast Texas, it actually pulled moisture out of the high plains, and so we had no rain at all during our harvest uh, period. Um, so the ripening was incredibly intense. In fact, we had some varieties that came in. Uh, you know, 28 bricks, 29 bricks, um, intense flavor, dark, dark uh, color, um, uh, great structure. So the quality that we saw this year was really exceptional. And because of all the plantings that have been happening in the last three or four years, um, you really have uh, some some very substantial quantity coming in too. Th- this year, Messinahoff, um, uh, we were we were really uh, we were really pushing the limits of what we could what we could process. We did about uh, eleven hundred tons of, of fruit this year. Eleven hundred tons! Oh my goodness! Yes. Wow, that's incredible. Um, and 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 across the board, what were there any varieties that particularly stuck out to you? Um, yeah, what 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 really stood out? Well, I mean, actually, Cab did really well this year. Um, it really, really ripened well. Our Primitivo uh, came in uh, very nicely. Uh, some of the early season uh, wines, uh, like one of the varieties that's not really planted a whole lot in the state of Texas is Pinot Grigio. Our Pinot Grigio, not only was it the first variety to come in, really good quality, but we're, we've already bottled our 2017 Pinot Grigio and our wow. 2017 Sauvignon Blanc, which were both early to come in this year, but really, really, really nice quality. Um, just the, the fruit characteristics on the whites this year were very, very bright, lots of great flavor and aromas. Um, but across the board, I, I don't think that there was a single variety that I would say did not really come in well this year. Wow. Very cool. Um, 
you know, in our a, a few minutes, we have, we have a, a few minutes left here. Um, what what direction? I mean, you said that you took over in 2015, and uh, we've seen this natural growth. Or is there any any uh, ways that you're kind of steering the ship uh, in in a different way, or what what direction are you wanting to take it, uh, the winery in the future? Well, so I would say there's multiple different directions. This year, we launched into a lot of um, uh, bulk market support, so creating a market for other wineries to be able to get. Um, varieties that maybe they weren't able to get a hold of before. Can you explain the ins and outs of that a little bit more? So yeah. one of the things, any any mature wine industry, you have to have a bulk market because it, and it could be whether you have a challenging crop or a winery goes through great growth. Like you plan on 5,000 cases and your consumers demand 10. Um, you have to have a base to pull that, uh, that wine from. And so once harvest is over, it's done. That's finished. Um, so if there's no bulk market, then those wineries can't have that natural organic growth. So having a bulk market means that some wineries take additional volume in so that they have it as a supply for other wineries that might need it or themselves if they grow. Um, this year, I, I'm aware of at least three wineries that are engaging in bulk uh, in bulk. Uh, creation for other wineries. So is that, um, so previously we should say, so that didn't really exist much previously, right? Almost none. Almost none. And and now you're starting to see it a little bit more and wineries, uh, so, so a winery will make the wine and then uh, decide, okay, either I'm going to sell it on, or either I'm going to use it or I'm going to sell it on the bulk market. But um, I guess what you're saying is that wineries are buying grapes in order to supply a bulk market instead Correct. of being like, oh, I, I screwed up. I, I right. you know, b- <laughs> bought all these grapes and now I can't sell them. It's being done intentionally. And, and I mean, there are wineries on the West Coast that so that's all they do. Yeah. That, that's 100% of their focus is they just make bulk wine that's available in the broad market for, for sale. And so uh, that's part of, of that initiative. I would say another thing is uh, alternative packaging, so kegs, cans, things like that. We've really expanded aggressively into that marketplace, and we're going to continue to push in that direction. What are the examples? What, what Which actual wines uh, are you doing with well, that? Well, so in keg, um, we probably have close to 30 wines uh, that we off and on do in keg, and it's really based upon what's fresh, what's hot, what we want to be able to do some trial with. The first release of our Tempranillo was actually done through a keg sale. And do so. you use that in the tasting room or, or, or do you see restaurants are, are more interested in that? We, uh, all three of our locations have tap systems. In fact, our grapevine location has 18 taps. Um, but restaurants are starting to want that more and more. And so we are, we do have a pretty good presence in the state of Texas, uh, with keg sales and that's, that's grown a lot. Yeah. Cans is something that we just are dipping our toes into recently, but, um, I'm excited about that. Um, but in, in terms of uh, futuristic marketplace, we're going to continue to grow um, in our winery direct sales, uh, whether that be through our membership programs or uh, potentially we have uh, maybe even another location on the horizon. But um, we want to be able to create opportunities to connect with customers in any way that we can. Yeah, yeah. Do you see, um, you know, so obviously continuing with uh, the grapes that, that you're doing and uh, 33 group grapes, you said, I mean, do, do you see um, there being almost a problem with the diversity or, you know, as we, where we don't have that one kind of flagship grape or, um, or is it the diversity, the advantage? So 
And I've gotten this question a lot over the last, you know, three or four years especially, but um, people want to define us as a single variety. And my question back to them is, what is the grape of France? Yeah, right. You know, um, the opportunity that we have is that so many varieties grow well, and so why limit ourselves to a few varieties whenever we can really produce great quality wines across the board? Now, there are definitely ones that I, I see over time probably are going to slow down and become more niche markets and, and not continue to grow. Um, and then there's those varieties that are just absolutely hot and that are going to, you're going to start seeing plantings across the, across the board. But a lot of that comes along with consumer awareness and demand. Like in the, in the store, Tempranillo, if I would have tried to sell my Tempranillo in the store four or five years ago, and by store, I mean your grocery stores, Sure, most people would not have purchased it. Whereas today I have a relative comfort that uh, most people at least understand what it is right. to be able to purchase it. Yeah, and, and would you um, almost uh, in the future dare to be putting in broader distribution something that's even more niche that you don't have the advantage of educating the, the, you know, the consumer when they come to your winery, just putting it out there on the shelf? No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, once people are comfortable with the brand, most of the time they're willing to explore a little bit. Right. And so um, we do have a couple of those products that have, have done just exactly what you're talking about. Um, and being able to get a small, like our GSM, for example, Grenache Ramo Vedra Blend. Um, when we first put it out there, a lot of people weren't really aware of what that is, but it's now one of our top selling wines. Uh, it went into Sawgrass Steakhouse nationwide for a few years, and now there's a demand for it all over the state. So, you know, you never know where something is going to go after the consumers get a hold of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, we, we, we glanced upon this, but uh, we want to mention, because it is a, a very important uh, topic, is the uh, the resilience label that you that you came up with. Tell us how that originated, and uh, and all 100% of proceeds go to uh, Harvey Relief, right? Yes. So, um, right after Hurricane Harvey hit, uh, actually, that same uh, weekend was... Um, kind of interesting because we had our, our Fredericksburg, our hill country harvest, uh, for our, our one acre vineyard that's there. And that's, that's really meant to be, it's more of like an old world educational experience. It's head trained that people get to go out there and pick it by hand and then foot stomp it. And it's more just so that they can see the traditional method of making wine. However, that was the same weekend as the hurricane. So we're out there, uh, with a few very brave cu- customers, so props to them, but with probably like 40 mile an hour winds and torrential rain, we're out there picking grapes. So that was that was kind of an interesting uh, harvest experience. But between that and then shortly thereafter, um, just seeing the needs, we we encouraged all of our uh, employees. We did a lot of donation programs, uh, donating supplies and food and things like that. But wanted to be able to do something that was not only more, but that also was lasting. One of the things I you often see with a disaster is a month later, people seem to forget that it yeah. happened. Um, so I was hoping to create a product and a label that stood out so that for the next year, whenever you walk through the grocery store, you'd be able to see that label, and it reminds you of the fact that there's still a lot of people that need help. Um, so the proceeds from the product do go to, to benefit. The, the, the first organization that we're working with is Feeding Texas because – um, they were under in incredible strain uh, right after the hurricane. Thousands of people were displaced uh, all over the state, and where they went to find food was at the food banks. And Feeding Texas supports all those food banks throughout the state of Texas. Um, so that's the organization we're working with right now. Um, as their focus might shift back to their normal operation, then we might partner with other 
organizations, but it will always go to benefit Hurricane Harvey relief efforts. Yeah, th- throughout throughout uh, the time that it's available, or do you plan on con- kind of continuing uh, after this bottling? Or um... well, I'm planning. I'm planning on trying to keep it uh, rolling for at least 12 months, and we'll see what goes from there. And actually, the the response we've had has been so amazing, not just for Hurricane Harvey, but in general, that concept of giving back, which Messinahoff actually donates a tremendous amount of goods and services um, every year to all sorts of organizations throughout the state. But I think that having something that's really, truly dedicated to a cause— um, has inspired us to, to continue a similar program regardless of, of what it is for. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, uh, really good good on you for, for, uh, for doing that, such a, an important uh, topic. And um, I know that the wine industry has really come together uh, to, to, um, to support the, the, the Harvey uh, relief uh, efforts, as well as, you know, the California disaster of the yes. fires, my goodness. Um, well, any final thoughts before we, we shut it down? No, just um, you know, go out there and drink Texas wine. It's a it's an amazing industry with lots of great people in it that make fabulous products. And actually, one thing we, I didn't mention that I think is is always uh, important that as a kind of a as a recognition of the quality this year, Texas wine won seven best of class out of thirty three entries into uh, San Francisco Chronicle competition. Yeah, so. Uh, that was more so than any other state except for California, and that's California had like 3,000 entries into the competition. So you have got some great quality wines right around the corner. You just have to go and try them out. Yeah, great. Uh, Paul Mitchell and Karen Bonarigo, thank you so much for, for being here in the station and uh, and doing what you're doing. Um, again, uh, owners of Messinahoff Winery in Bryan, Hill Country, and Grapevine. Thanks, guys. Thank you.